To set the scene for you, to remind you, the Israelites are still encamped around the tabernacle at Mount Sinai. It is the second month of the second year since the Exodus. They're camped at Mount Sinai where they had received the law. They've built the tabernacle. They've dedicated the tabernacle. And last week we saw they counted all the people, hence the name Numbers. And the Levites and the priests were commissioned for their respective duties. So in these next two chapters, we are still establishing camp life. And that will end at, after chapter 6. It'll, it'll change. And we will begin to transition away from Mount Sinai, although we won't depart until chapter 10. So 5 and 6 is now that we've got priests, Levites, and all the, the people in the camp, we're going to talk about a few other things. And all of these disparate Subjects have to do with staying within the favor of the Lord, maintaining the integrity of God's camp. A lot, there's, there's not much of a through line, but that's the one that we're going to carry through, and there's four or five sections here, that it's all about maintaining this camp that has been established, both in relationship to God and to one another. And that is going to be our main lesson for tonight. There's going to be several smaller lessons that all amount to that it is our job to maintain the integrity of the camp, of our community as a church, and to seek the favor of the Lord found only in Jesus Christ. And this is uh, hopefully a lot of things in here that are familiar to you, and maybe now you can know where they come from. We'll begin with the first four verses. This first half of the chapter will go pretty quick. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord said to Moses, so the people did. We discussed in chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15 of Leviticus that the unclean were to maintain separation from those who were clean. And Leviticus 12 through 15 discussed what that meant to be clean or unclean. This subject uh, very often is associated with the oppression of the Old Testament, that they would say a woman on her menstrual cycle was unclean and isn't that oppressive. And I have to remind us all, to be unclean does not mean to be sinful. It means to be unclean. Now, uncleanness is used as a metaphor and a symbol for sin throughout the Old Testament, but Jesus made it very clear that just because someone is unclean does not mean they have done something wrong. That said, uncleanness was to be kept away from the people, whether that was in a person's body, in a garment, in a person's house, in the plaster that they would build their houses with. And on, on a surface level, we can see how wise God was in doing this, in keeping communicable diseases away from the, the camp, from contagions being spread. Uh, we just came out of a, a long season where we were debating about how best to do it, but we were taking great measures in order to stop the spread, right? This is exactly what the uncleanness laws did. However, the way that it is explained in the Bible is about the holiness of God, that nothing that was aberrant or defiling could come near him or his people into his presence. So nothing that, it says leprosy, and that's a very broad term that can refer to any manner of skin disease that just won't heal. So of course it could include modern day leprosy, what we call Hansen's disease, or any number of things. If it was not going away, you needed to stay away so that somebody else didn't catch it. It also had to do, you see, with discharges. This is if, uh, like the woman in the Gospels who had the issue of blood, if somebody had some kind of sexual disease or uh, some other kind of discharge from the body that was not being healed, they needed to stay away so that no one else would get sick or infected. Or you notice that when we talk about uncleanness more broadly, only clean, unblemished animals could be sacrificed in the Lord's tabernacle. And this is something else that God is communicating through cleanness that... Only those that were whole could come before him. That there's this attitude of wholeness 
in the Bible. And we live in days where out of compassion, we are trying very, very hard to make sure that anybody who is disabled or has any kind of defect or deformity is welcomed and accepted. And that is a good thing. But we also talked about how the Lord does not shy away from proclaiming, this is the way that I made it, and this is good. And describing some of those things as the effects of sin that will one day be healed. It's an important thing to know. We can be compassionate and also understand the ravages that sin have wreaked on this world. And the Lord tells them, put out the unclean people from your midst. This probably would have been a hard day. If you've got people in your midst that are sick and are not getting better, they need to leave. They need to go outside the camp. And I imagine that there was probably Levitical enforcement of this. No, you can't stay here. But the people were hopefully, it says they did everything that the Lord asked them to do. So I would imagine the power and the might of the Lord was still so fresh in their minds that they were willing to do that. So what you end up with is a concentric setup of the camp. You have within the tabernacle, you have the Holy of Holies where the ark was. Outside of that, you had the holy place. Outside of that, you had the the courtyard of the tabernacle where the sacrifices were made. Outside of that, directly, was where the priests dwelt. And then a little farther out from that was the Levites, remember, around the the tabernacle according to their their clans. Then outside of that, you had the tribes organized according to their clans. There's there's, uh, lessening holiness as we get away from the sanctuary. Then on the outside edge would have been those who were unclean. And then outside beyond that would have been the wilderness and the other nations. So God is painting a visual picture here. This was necessary and sanitary, don't forget, but also necessary to dwell with God. Psalm 24, we all know this verse, but keep, a, keep this in mind in terms of actual cleanness here. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Sin has separated us from God, and as Christians, as the people of God, we are to maintain from that, maintain separation from that which will corrupt us. If you want to know more about that, Leviticus 12 through 15, we talked about all the cleanliness laws in great detail. Let's carry on now to verse 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, you can even translate that, and that person feels guilty, as in their conscience catches up with them, or they maybe realize they had done something wrong inadvertently. Verse 7, he shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it, and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. But if the man has no next of kin... To whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. And every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donations. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. This is a reminder of the guilt offering. This was discussed in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 14, through chapter 6, verse 7. The first seven chapters of Leviticus were the book of sacrifices. Do you remember these? Burnt offering, sin offering, grain offering, guilt offering. Now, a guilt offering was made when compensation was required. It was exactly the same as the sin offering in terms of the ritual. A ram would be sacrificed amid other things. But they also were to make restitution. You would pay fully back what needed to be paid plus 20%, plus a fifth. This would be in cases of fraud, in cases of theft. If you had realized that you had accidentally taken something from somebody. But it also was probably to encourage people to confess their sins voluntarily. Because according to Exodus 22, if you were caught stealing or you were caught defrauding somebody, the penalty was you had to pay back double. So let's say that you cheat somebody out of $100. If you're caught and go to court, you're going to have to pay back $200. But if you, your conscience afflicts you, maybe your, your wife gets a hold of you and says, you've got to pay this back, you can go back, offer a guilt offering, and pay $120 back, and there will be no further punishment. So this is not just to provide penalties, but to provide, uh, to incentivize people to do the right thing. And this chapter adds to what we read in in Leviticus 5 and 6, that if the guy that you're supposed to pay back was dead, or maybe they were missing or something like that, 
it would go to his redeemer. This is the Hebrew word goel. It has here a near or a close relative. This is the kinsman redeemer that we talked about as best exemplified in the story of Ruth. But if this person had no family, then it would go to the priest. It would go to the tabernacle. And you'll remember that the priests and the Levites were supported through the portions that they received of the offerings. The only offering where the priest did not get a piece was the burnt offering. It would all be consumed, but the priest would get a portion of the others. This would enable them to serve without having to work. So the Levites, same thing. They're not going to be given any, a piece of the promised land uh, because of this reason. Now, if the law about the unclean was about keeping the camp clean, making sure it was not being defiled, and if you've been to a third world country and you've been to places where they don't have strict sanitation, you can understand why this was necessary, why this was needed. And even in some of our, unfortunately, our big cities, it's starting to become a problem as well. As people become reluctant to enforce certain things, we begin to remember why they were enforced in the first place. But this was to keep the camp apart, not from uncleanness, which did not necessarily imply sin, but also to keep it clear from sin, specifically conflict with each other. He says, you need to make recompense with one another. So we're not only keeping the camp clean, we're keeping it pure. He says, even if the event is over, even if the guy is dead and you remember what you did, you've got to come back. And pay it back. Like that scene in A Christmas Carol when Ebenezer Scrooge goes back to Bob Cratchit's house and he gives him a raise and he gives him all the Christmas presents and, and does that. Or Zacchaeus when he says, I give back to the poor everything that I owe plus a fifth, right? He was doing what the law told him to do. What do we learn from this? In God's community, yeah, we stay away from sinful things. But there are some people that are so good at staying away from sinful things, they get prideful about it and it makes them angry and grumpy against other people. The Lord goes, when you mess up in God's church, you've got to make it right. You can't just feel sorry and come forward and weep and say, I'm sorry, Lord. God goes, that's wonderful. Now go to your brother and make it right. Do you remember when Jesus said, if you know that your brother has something against you, leave your offering at the altar, go make it right, and then come back? Jesus is like, your offerings are great. I love your worship. I love your songs. I love your prayers. But I really need you guys to be eager to maintain the bond of peace, as Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4. So those are two short little sections about the laws that we've already gone over, but this is the, the point in the second year, second month, where they're going to now start really enforcing these things. And it's about maintaining, as we've said in our title, the integrity of the camp, both the cleanness of it and the, the harmony, you might say, between people in the camp. All right, this is a weird one. But I think there's a good lesson to learn. Let's start in chapter 5, verse 11, and go down to the end of the chapter, verse 31. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, since she was not taken in the act... So we're dealing with a woman who has cheated on her husband and he does not know about it. Verse 14, and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous, my better translation might be suspicious of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her. So he's saying, if your wife cheats on you, but you can't prove it, but you're suspicious about it, Here's what you're going to do. Come to the priest. A tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it. For it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. This would probably be right directly before the doors of the holy place is what that means. And the priest shall take holy water, which as far as I can tell is the only reference in the Bible to holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand, the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Try to track this picture if you can, okay? Then the priest shall make her take an oath saying, if no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. 
But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. The thigh in the Bible is very often a euphemism for the sexual organ. Remember when Abraham had his servant place his hand under his thigh? It's a similar thing here. May this water, verse 22, that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. That is the first use of the word Amen in your Bible. You might want to mark that. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. He's writing with ink on the scroll and then he's going to wash the ink off into the water. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand, and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar, and afterwards shall make the woman drink the water." So she's not drinking it twice, but it it doesn't give us the time in the ceremony until that verse. And when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain and her womb shall swell and her thigh shall fall away and the woman shall become a curse among her people. As in, I hope you end up just like her. That's what it means to be a curse among the people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. This is the law in cases of jealousy when a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife. Then he shall set the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity." This is a very interesting passage, probably not one that you learned with a flannel graph when you were in children's ministry growing up. This is also a very frequently attacked passage in the Old Testament. Seems like we've had a lot to say about feminist theologians lately. Uh, That has not been planned, but this is in fact the case, that feminist theologians really don't like this section because it is absolutely incomprehensible unless you believe in God. And not God as some some high ideal for us to aspire to, but an actual intervening miracle working God of wrath and love. So to really break this down for you so that you can track it here. If a man grew suspicious that his wife had cheated on him, he could bring her to the tabernacle and they would undergo this ritual in order to determine if she was guilty or innocent. What they were to do was to bring a grain offering. Leviticus chapter 2 is all about the grain offering. But he says, not with oil and not with frankincense. Maybe you remember this. When you brought a grain offering, you'd either make loaves, you would make cakes, or you would just bring the flour. And this is what they're doing here. They're supposed to bring a tenth of an ephah of flour. Then what you normally would do is you would spread oil on it, and you would put uh, little... Uh, they're kind of like crystals of frankincense. They're, they're sap that would burn. And so what you would do is burn the memorial portion. You'd take one loaf or you'd take a pinch of it and you'd burn it with the oil and the frankincense would cause it to smell really nice. He says, you're not doing that. This is too serious. The grain offering was normally a celebratory thing. In this case, it is not. And so he'd bring this grain offering of jealousy, it says, And the priest would take her, it says, before the Lord, and he would get water in an earthenware vessel. Where is he getting water? Most likely out of the bronze laver where the priests were to wash. So this is the only place we know where we're getting holy water uh, in the Bible. He would fill the cup up with water. He would go into the holy place. He would take dust from off the floor of the holy place and sprinkle it into the cup. Then he would come out. He would take the woman's hair down, which is a, a mark of various things in the Bible. Usually it's a mark of mourning. Uh, so that's, that's probably the thing that's going on here, that this is a very serious, very solemn thing. There's also something in the Bible about your head being uncovered as being before the Lord. It could be a symbol of if you have taken the head covering over your head, which was a symbol of authority. We really don't know why, but it just adds to the image here. She's holding the offering. He's holding the cup. Her hair is unbound. They're standing before the tabernacle. And the priest would declare a curse that essentially says, if you have cheated on your husband and been unfaithful, Then when you drink this water, may the Lord cause you to become barren. 
He says may, that your, your uh, thigh may fall away and your body may swell up. Pretty much what he's saying is may you no longer be able to have children. And if, he says, but if you've not cheated, if you've been faithful to your husband, then may this, may this do nothing to you. And the woman was then to say, amen, amen. As in, I agree to the terms you've just described. He then would write that curse down. So everything he just said, he would write it out on a scroll. Now their scrolls were different from our paper. When you write pen on paper, it's not really coming back, is it? But the way they did it, they would use the ink and they would probably use a brush or some kind of calligraphy pen. And they very often wrote on animal skins or papyrus where you would need to let it dry. Have you ever seen in one of those old movies where they write something and then they sprinkle that sand or that dust over it? That's supposed to help the ink coagulate and stay still. So it was very easy for them to write it and then wash the ink off into the cup. So he's got this cup full of water from the bronze labor, dust from the floor of the tabernacle, and the ink where he had written the curse down on a scroll. Then they would switch. The priest would take the grain offering while she holds the cup. He would wave it before the Lord. We talked about wave offerings and heave offerings. Burn the memorial portion and then she would drink it and the ceremony would be over. It would be in God's hands now. This is similar but quite different from something that was common in this day. There was something they used to do called a trial by ordeal. What they would do is they would say, if you're guilty, then, or if we suspect you're guilty, we're going to have you do something extremely dangerous. And if the gods preserve you, then, uh, then you'll be okay. But they would make them do things like you have to grab hold of a hot iron and hold it in your hands for a whole minute. There's actually a Babylonian law. People love to talk about how Moses ripped off Hammurabi's code. Do you know what Hammurabi's code said? If a man suspects his woman of cheating on him, she is to jump in a raging river, and if she survives, then she is not guilty. And if she dies, then, you know, she was guilty all along. So I don't know if you've ever been whitewater rafting before, but jumping in without a raft is not a good idea. And you look at those things, and they even did this in the medieval times, right? And you say, well, of course they're all going to be guilty, Right? Of course the guy's not going to be able to hold the iron. It's so barbaric, we say, right? Well, look at what God is doing here. It's a similar idea, but it is very, very different because the ritual is not dangerous. Drinking a cup with dirt and ink in it is not going to kill you and probably not even going to make you sick. It will be bitter and it won't taste very good, but that's about it. The ritual is not dangerous. Can you see how in the other trials by ordeal, the advantage was absolutely with the plaintiff? If you're accusing somebody, and you know, kind of like the, during the Salem witch trials, where if you were accused of being a witch, they would put heavy rocks on your chest until you confessed. And if you died, well, you were, you were guilty all along. It's like, yeah, the person accusing has all the power. It's the exact opposite here. The defendant has the advantage here. If we're just looking at this from a human perspective, you could say, this woman is just going to get away with cheating over and over again because she's just drinking dirt water. That's not a big deal. They didn't have, you know, filtered water back then anyway. So it's very, very different. So I, I, it's not good when somebody tries to lump this into the same category as that other thing. It's very different. And many people will say, this is so oppressive of women. Because look, this woman is being dragged and has to go through this humiliating experience. If she's done something or if she hasn't done something, in many ways, this was a protection of the woman. I'm not pretending that it is the way that we would like to do it, but it was a protection because I just said, in other cultures at this time, a woman had no rights if she was accused by her husband. None, zero. If he thinks you, you were unfaithful, you were unfaithful. Off with your head. The husband has the right to do that because his, his testimony counted for more. That's not the way it worked in God's law. So what the Lord does is fine. If you suspect your wife is... is been unfaithful, but she, you can't prove it. You bring her to me. We'll go through a, a, basically an elaborate prayer, and I will deal with it myself. And once it's over, it's done. You don't get to harass her and beat her the rest of your life because it's in God's hands. It's removing that kind of inequality here. I think the most likely thing is it's kind of like what Solomon did with the, the two prostitutes that were arguing over their baby. Remember that story? One of them rolled over and accidentally smothered her baby in the night and then was claiming that the other baby was hers and they were fighting over it. So they're, you know, squabbling in front of Solomon and he says, here's what we'll do. Bring me a sword and we'll chop the baby in half. 
Now, the one whose baby it actually was goes, well, no, no, she can have it. She can just have the baby. Rather than that, and cut it in half. The other lady goes, well, that sounds fair to me. You're very wise, King Solomon. And he goes, okay, this is very obviously the real mom here, right? It's, it's trying to provoke a response. I think this is probably the main thing we're doing here. That if this woman actually believed, as she should, that the holy place was being placed into her hands, and she was about to imbibe the presence of the Lord in a symbolic way, then she should be scared to death. But if she believes that nothing's going to touch her, if she's been okay, then she's going to go through with it. I can imagine at various steps of this process, if somebody really was guilty, just come out and say, okay, fine, I confess, I did it. That's probably the main thing we're trying to go for here. And while we don't read about this elsewhere in the Bible, this would have been real. God tells us this, which means that God actually did this. That this person was drinking a curse upon themselves. Now, many have objected that, well, why doesn't the woman have the right to do this for her husband? And people will say ignorant things like, so husbands could just cheat all they wanted and they wouldn't get punished for it? No. Exodus chapter 20, 14 says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And in verse 17, he says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. All of the adultery passages we've had so far have been aimed at the fellas. And adultery was a capital crime for both parties. If you were caught committing adultery, you were both killed, which is why we read the story in John where the woman was caught in adultery. And we go, well, where's the guy? That's why a lot of people think that story might have been a setup in the first place. So the idea that men could just get away with that kind of thing is not the case. But we read this this phrase several times in this section. This is an example of God upholding the authority of the husband over his wife. Something else that we don't like very much these days. But there's plenty that we need to be learning from Scripture. And this is not just an Old Testament thing. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 24, Paul wrote, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Own husband is important there, right? You don't have to submit to every man, but to your own husband. For the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Colossians says the same thing. Peter says the same thing. Hebrews talks about Sarah as being an example of a good wife because she referred to her husband as Lord. Not Lord as in Adonai, Yahweh. Lord as in Master, or Senor, or Sir. And we say, well, I don't like that. Well, we have a cultural bias against this, and we need to own that. God insists upon the hierarchy of marriage, and God would not permit the head of the household to be shamed this way in his camp. Do you see how we're still talking about the Lord establishing rank in the camp here? We talked about the priests. We talked about the Levites. We talked about the tribes. We talked about the unclean. Now we're talking about even in the family. And we've all but tossed this idea out that the the husband is the head of the wife. But not here. Not in this place. Husbands, you are to lead your wife and to lead your home and to lead your children And of course, this does not mean that you stomp around like some sort of caveman and that any time, you know, well, well, I want to watch, you know, I want to watch this show tonight and I'm the head of the household, so we have to do it. Okay, take it easy. However, you are to lead your home and wives, you are to submit unto your husbands. We need to remember this, that the Lord, the Lord, for all we talk about, really on both sides of the, of the social and political divide about, you know, we've got to change and flatten out and tear down the hierarchy and the system and tear down the elites. God is, is quite a fan of hierarchy because as far as he's concerned, your place in it does not determine your value. So you should not be overly concerned with it. And I should add to this, by the way, although this should be obvious, adultery is never justified. Now, we know that. I think if there's one thing that we still get in terms of sexual morality as a culture is that you don't cheat on people. However, then we'll go to these movies where like, you ever like five minutes in the movie, you go, they're setting it up where she's going to cheat on him and we're going to supposed to be happy about it. It was a good thing. They finally were able to, to break out of that oppressive relationship. We don't celebrate adultery. We don't justify adultery. 
Well, we're just in love. Well, what about the love that you have with your wife or your husband, the person you stood before God and vowed to stand by forever? <laughs> the other day we were having dinner and Josie Mae sits up and, you know those out of the blue things that kids will say? She goes, Daddy, you can't leave and go somewhere else to live. I said, well, I wasn't gonna. <laughs> but she goes, because you're married to mommy. And I said, that's right. We've got a picture of our uh, wedding day on the wall. And I had a faux hawk. It's a great picture. But I pointed to it. And I'm like, hey, that's the day that your daddy stood up in front of all those people and said, I'm never going to be with anybody else. And I'm never going to leave. And all the you know, kids kind of smile. <laughs> yeah, because they love that, right? They love knowing that, all right, everybody's together and we're going to stay together. But it's true. And of course, there's another lesson to learn here. Husbands and wives ought to take care of each other and never allow their emotional or physical relationship to atrophy and provide temptation for each other. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, you do not have rights to your own body in the marriage relationship. Not just men, but women. Neither one of you has rights to each other. He says, you are to be the other person's safeguard against sexual temptation, which means Christian marriages are to have a vibrant, healthy sex life. That's in the Bible. So that he or she is not tempted to go somewhere else for that. Well, I feel like our relationship has moved beyond that. No, it hasn't. I promise you. Well, I just don't really have that drive anymore. But do you love him enough to protect him and take care of him? That's what we're to do for each other. So this is obviously a very complicated uh, concept, marriage and all that. But uh, this rule is maintaining Authority within the camp where it belongs, but it's also protecting the weaker party and involving God in the situation. And I will say, we never read about this happening in the Bible. It sure seems like it was a rare thing if it ever happened. And I also would imagine that a good, wise priest would also, if a guy comes in like a third time, would be like, all right, we're going to have to have a conversation here. You know, we gotta, we've got to talk about this. So, all right, chapter six now. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins." All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head. Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. Holy, the fundamental meaning is separate. He shall let the locks of his hair, of his head, grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. Not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. And if any man dies very suddenly beside him, some kind of accident or along those lines, and he deviles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. And on the seventh day, he shall shave it. On the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering, and make atonement for him, because he sinned by reason of the dead body. And he shall consecrate his head that same day, and separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation, and bring a male lamb a year old for a guilt offering. But the previous period shall be void, because his separation was defiled. Note there, a guilt offering would have included recompense of extra 20%. As in, God has lost the time that he would have gained from this Nazarite. And this is the law for the Nazarite when the time of his separation has been completed. He shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord, one male lamb, a year old, without blemish for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb, a year old, without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread. Loaves of fine flour mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. That describes two different methods of preparation for the bread. And their grain offering and their drink offerings. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord with the basket of unleavened bread. 
The priest shall offer also its grain offering and its drink offering. And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the shoulder of the ram when it is boiled and one unleavened loaf out of the basket and one unleavened wafer and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved the hair of his consecration. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. They are a holy portion for the priest, together with the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed. And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite. But if he vows an offering to the Lord above his Nazarite vow, as he can afford, in exact accordance with the vow that he takes, then he shall do in addition to the law of the Nazarite. You've probably heard of this one, most likely in accordance with Samson. The law of the Nazarite. Now, Nazarite is our English word for it. The Hebrew word is the Nazir. And it comes from the word dedicated, consecrated. It was a vow of separation and service. Now, when you read that, it says, when a man or woman makes a special vow of a Nazirite to separate himself, the word for Nazirite is Nazir. And right after that, separate is the word Nazar. It's using the verb form of the noun there. So a Nazir, who Nazard himself to God, would do this for a special time period of service or of perhaps devotion and prayer. Maybe he would volunteer in the tabernacle for a time. Maybe uh, going off to war, he would do it in order to invoke blessing from the Lord. It seems that the vow would begin. It doesn't say this at the beginning, but it describes it at the end or when he messes up. Uh, you would bring a male lamb you would declare what you intended to do for how long, and you would declare, as he said at the end in verse 21, if you were going to also pay something extra at the end. So I'm going to consecrate my body and my time, and then I'm also going to offer the Lord an extra offering at the end of this. David would do this kind of thing quite a bit, not necessarily the vow, but extra free will offerings to the Lord. The Nazarite would eat no fruit of the vine, so it's not just don't drink wine, it's also not just strong drink, so that would have been something fermented from grain uh, along those lines. Uh, not just the wine, no grapes, no seeds, no skin of the grapes. I just, I just had a little piece. No, no, no. Totally abstinent from the fruit of the vine. He would not cut his hair or his beard. That's one thing that the Samson movies have yet to get. He would not just have had long hair. He had a really long mangy beard too. Or defile himself with a corpse. Now you say to make himself unclean for his father or mother. Remember, they used the rights of the Egyptians to embalm bodies, and it was the responsibility of the close relatives to engage in that practice. So your father died, you were the one that embalmed him. Very meaningful thing. But he says, but if you are one of my Nazarites, you're not to do that. Now, if you accidentally touched a body, the Nazarite would be unclean for a week and then shave his head on the seventh day. The day after that, he would bring two birds, pigeons or turtle doves, for a sin offering, which is to uh, ask forgiveness for failing in his vow as a Nazarite, and then a burnt offering, which was in essence to start over. Now, and there's debate over whether they would have to start from the beginning. Like if you said, I'm going to be a Nazarite for six months, and then after two months, you were defiled by a body, did you have to start all the way over, or did you just have to add a week for the time that you were defiled? There's difference of opinion on that. At the end of his time of service, he would bring two lambs, a male lamb for a burnt offering, a female lamb for a sin offering. Then he would offer a special peace offering of a ram, which would include a grain offering of loaves and wafers before the Lord with the oil and the frankincense, like we talked about before, and as well a drink offering. We're never given prescription for what it looks like to offer a drink offering. We know they were poured out. This is very common if you've uh, read any Greek mythology, uh, Homer, anything like that. They would take the wine and they would pour it out in the presence of the gods. Believe it or not, when we say things like, I'm going to pour one out for the boys back home, that comes all the way back to the drink offerings of ancient times. We're still doing that. 
It also could be, and this is my opinion, I didn't read this anyway, but I think it may be the case, there may have been a ceremonial drinking of the wine to formally end the Nazarite vow, because he's been abstaining from wine up to this point. Perhaps there, this was the official resumption of it, where he would drink a portion and then pour it out in the presence of the Lord. And then the priest, he says, would wave the grain offering and keep his portion. Also on that last peace offering, so after it's all over, a burnt offering and a sin offering to restore you to normal fellowship to the Lord. And then a peace offering, which was the one where you also got to share in the meal. It was a fellowship offering with the Lord. And his hair was burned with the, the portion of the peace offering. So the hair was a very important part of this. And the only other thing that they needed to do was if they had said, and when I'm done, I'll offer 100 shekels to the Lord, they would bring that in. We have a lot of records from the intertestamental period and afterwards that it was a very common thing for rich men in the, uh, in the culture to sponsor people for Nazarite vows. And if you were, you were poor and you couldn't afford these things, you would find a rich, godly person to sponsor you. We read about several people in the Bible who were Nazarites. At Sencrie, by the way, I, I didn't realize this, uh, Sencrie is where, you remember Phoebe was from, who delivered the book of Romans. But in Acts 18, 18, it says that while Paul was in Sencrie, he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Then in Acts 21, 26, when Paul comes back from his third missionary journey, Paul goes into the temple and it says, he purified himself along with the other men, gave notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. In Acts 21, what Paul is doing is James says, hey, we're, we're starting to bridge the gap between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, but everybody's really suspicious of you. We've got four guys that are about to finish up their Nazarite vow. Paul himself was also finishing up a Nazarite vow. So why don't you go and you pay for all of the sacrifices that needed to be offered? And that's what Paul was doing when he was recognized in the temple and then was arrested for what would be his last time in Jerusalem. It seems to me that Paul would take a Nazarite vow before each of his missionary journeys. At least at the end of his second and third missionary journeys, he finishes up a Nazarite vow. And because he needed to bring the hair with him, in Sencrie, when he cut his hair, he must have put it in a bag or something and carried it back with him to burn it on the altar. Although church history tells us that Paul was bald. So maybe he only had the, the fringe around the edge. And you can add that to your image of what Paul would have looked like. Of course, we know there were several people in the Bible who were Nazarites from birth. Samuel was one of those. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11, Hannah says, I have dedicated him to the Lord. No razor shall touch his head. So add that to your image of Samuel. Long hair, long beard, and Samuel became an old man. So he never cut his hair and lived out his life. So the, the image of the wizard with the long hair and beard perhaps comes from this kind of thing. And of course, Samson is the other one. The Lord said that Samson would not, was not to cut his hair. And if you read the story of Samson, it is a story of a man slowly violating all the terms of the Nazarite vow. First, he violates the dead body of the lion. Do you remember that? He kills the lion and then he comes back and he takes the honey out of the corpse and eats it and gives it to his parents. He also marries a Philistine woman at the vineyards at Timnah. The implication being that uh, Samson is drinking with the boys at his uh, bachelor party. Read it. That's actually what was going on. And then, of course, the final one everybody knows is Delilah cut his hair. And that was the last straw for the Lord. Maybe John the Baptist. It does not say, but I, that's just my own thought. It's because of the way it describes him as such a wild man and how he wore camel's hair and he ate locusts and wild honey. Just a, th a thought I might have. A lot of miraculous births in the Bible ended up having Nazarites for life. So maybe John the Baptist was in that category too. There have always been those among God's people who've devoted themselves entirely to him, taken that extra step of commitment to God for a short time or for a lifetime. 1 Timothy 5, Paul talks about enrolling widows in the church, that there were widows that would just give themselves to the church. There are, in fact, some uh, women back in the church where I came from who are widows. That's exactly what they do. They show up like it's their job every day, and they find things to do because that's their ministry now. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about those that had decided not to marry so that they could serve the Lord full time. This would kind of fall under that category. These were the precursors of nuns, 
who are, of course, women who give themselves to the service of the Lord, and monks. Now, all, both of those things, nuns and monks, uh, began as something very organic and very uh, just kind of individual, and it became formalized over time. And uh, it's, it's highly criticized by a lot of people, but I don't think it should be criticized as much as we think, because God very much seems to honor those who devote their entire lives to him for a certain purpose. And in fact, in the book of Amos, one of the things the prophet blasts the people for is for encouraging Nazarites to break their vows. Amos 2, 11 and 12, he said, I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. I can imagine, oh, I'm a Nazarite. I've taken a vow. Come on, man. Just one drink. One drink's not going to kill you. The Lord is like, how dare you? If somebody has taken a stand to commit themselves in a certain way to me, don't you make fun of them? Don't you try to get them to stop? And don't you look down on them for it? I think it is a much better use of our time and energy not to look down on how somebody else has chosen to serve God, but instead look to ourselves and say, am I doing anything? It's very easy, as Teddy Roosevelt says, to point out how the strong man stumbles, the guy that's actually doing something, but the critic doesn't count. So don't look at how somebody else is following the Lord a way that you wouldn't do it. That's great. What are you doing? How are you doing it? It is good to abstain from things for the sake of the mission. And we ought to encourage lavish commitments to the Lord rather than deflating them. Now Solomon will say in Ecclesiastes, it's better to not vow than to vow and not do it. But if somebody's really dead set on doing it, we should encourage them. We should encourage people who are going to say, I'm not going to get married. I'm going to go on the missions field to somewhere where I might get killed. So you've got your whole life ahead of you. To which we should say, you know what? You go and you spend that life well for Jesus Christ. God allowed even those that were not priests and Levites to serve him in a special way. And we ourselves ought to be doing the same, whether for a time, for a season, for years, or for a lifetime. Verse 22 Another familiar passage, I think, coming to the end of the chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons. So this is at the priests now. Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. This is a good way to tie up this subsection of the book of Numbers. The first major section is from chapter 1 through 10, but these first chapters have been organizing the camp, organizing not just the structure, but today the fellowship of the camp. This is the priestly blessing, and these are famous words. I have a mug that have these words on it, and they represent what it means to share the favor of the Lord. Pastor Chuck Smith, who was the pastor of the First Calvary Chapel, used to end every Bible study by singing those words. And uh, I wish we all knew it together so that we could do it tonight, but it's a pretty cool thing when you get to sing scripture. The poetry here, and I appreciate how the newer translations break this down into poetic lines because that's exactly what it was. You can even hear the cadence in English as it's translated. These are three separate lines of increasing length, And the beginning and the final words of these sections is the Hebrew word Barak, which means to bless. So our former president, Barack Obama, his comes from Arabic, but those are cognate languages. The word Barak means blessed. And it is not a comment on whether or not he was a blessing to this country. That's for you to decide. The name Barak means blessed. And the first line is, may the Lord bless you and keep you. That is to provide you with your positive needs, bless you, give you everything that you need. But a blessing is not just what I need. It's over and above that, right? May God bless you and keep you. This is providing your negative needs, meaning keeping you away from the things that might harm you. God will keep you. He'll keep you well. May the Lord bless you and keep you. You might say, may the Lord give you everything you need and keep away anything that might hurt you. Second, May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Make his face shine 
and be gracious. These are both words related to the favor of the Lord. We're going to talk about this, I believe, next week, depending on how I break it down. But the lamps in the holy place, the seven lampstands, were to be aimed upon the 12 loaves of showbread. And it was to be a symbol of the presence of God always shining upon his people. So this is the blessing. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. As in, when you look upon God, may it not be seeing anger and wrath in his eyes, but his grace and his blessing and his love. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Countenance, you probably know this, means face. May the Lord lift up his countenance, which is a euphemism in Hebrew of like smiling upon you to lift up your countenance upon you and give you shalom. They still use this word to greet each other in Israel today. Shalom. It's kind of like aloha. It means hello and goodbye. And it means peace. But there's such a deep significance to that word. It's not, it's not just peace from war, although that's in there. It's not just peace from anxiety, although that's in there. It's not just peace as in all of your troubles are being resolved. That's in there. But it's peace of salvation as well. You know the first words Jesus said to his disciples after he came back from the dead? Shalom. It's in John. He said, Jesus appeared in their midst when the doors were locked, and he said, peace be unto you. Pretty significant, isn't it? Now you can have peace. It also kind of makes me laugh a little bit, because it, just to think of Jesus showing up, and his first words are, well, hi. It's like, shalom, I'm back, fellas. It's me again. We can think of Jesus smiling. I think he would have been smiling at then of all times, wouldn't you? Like, oh yeah, I just came in. (laughs) And give you peace. This this section is used throughout the Bible uh, in various ways, especially in the Psalms. There are six different places in the Psalms where they use this language. Psalm 67, verse 1, I'll just read one of them. They would sing in the temple, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. They were setting the priestly blessing to music. They were filled with this language that they wanted to be in God's good graces. This passage, these two chapters have shown us that by removing ourselves from defilement, by keeping faith with each other, by honoring the order in God's house and by committing ourselves fully to him, that's when we're prepared to receive his grace. But as we close, more than all of that, our high priest, Jesus, has proclaimed a blessing over us that is greater than anything a son of Aaron could have said. Hebrews 4, I'll read verses 14 and 16. This is a long discussion of how Jesus is our high priest, but this is the money, if you you know what I mean. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is only grace for you. There's only peace and blessing and love and the face of God shining down upon you. God smiles when he sees you because of Jesus Christ. Which therefore, knowing that, it ought to motivate us to maintain the integrity of the community of people that are all brought together under the same umbrella of grace. Our lessons from tonight, don't let yourself be defiled by sin or by any aberrant corruption. Walk in holiness, you know better. When you do sin though, come and make it right. Whether that's with God or with another person, when you do mess up, do something to fix it. Number three, honor God's order and fulfill the role that he's given you to play, whether that's husband or wife or father or mother or pastor or servant or any such thing, but do it with faithfulness and with love. Number four, commit yourself fully to Jesus Christ. You don't have to take a vow to be a Nazir when it is devoted to the Lord. And consider how you might increase your commitment, not how much can I get away with, But how much can I commit myself to the Lord? And lastly, delight yourself in the blessings given to us by the grace of Almighty God in Christ Jesus. You've been welcomed not to the fringes, not just to the the ranks of Israel, not just to the Levites. You've been invited into the Holy of Holies, beloved. You've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And his face shines on you today.